You know, when I was a little boy growing up, I was the oldest of three siblings. So my sisters are a couple years younger, and they are identical twins. My mom used to say, and still does, I'm glad I had two of them. <laughs> Makes me feel good, right? I've had therapy, so I'm doing a little bit better now. Um, but the way it worked out in my home is that I was the oldest sibling. And so I was expected to be more responsible. I was bigger and stronger. I was expected to protect my little sisters. Now, had I been a female, the same probably would have been true, right? Usually the older sibling is more responsible, bigger and stronger, supposed to take care of the younger ones. Doesn't always work well. Some of you can attest to that as younger siblings. Remember the older sibling dominated that role, didn't use it very well. But it's supposed to work well, right? And I think my sisters thought I was a little bit too overprotective at times. But overall, we got along well. In fact, my parents were really good to coach us. And I know one thing that they always emphasize is this, this isn't competition. Your sister's success is your success. It's the success of our family. And I would coach my sisters academically and in sports and things. I wanted them to do well. And I got excited when they did do well. And so we generally had a, had a really good relationship that way and, and had a great childhood. I remember the first time my mother um, took us to go see a movie by ourselves together. That's harder to do these days. You know, we, we went to see Walt Disney's Songs of the South. I still remember that at Fox Theater in Fremont. My sisters took my hands. I stuck my chest out and we walked into the theater. I must have been about 18. They're probably 16. <laughs> No, we weren't that old. But, but I still remember doing that. You know, there's a lot of memories that we had together as kids growing up. Now, if you were to ask the question, who did mom and dad love more? Who did they favor more? What would the answer be? Me, of course. <laughs> well, you might think that at first because I was more responsible and I was the protector growing up. But the reality is, is that my sisters and I were just different. They had things that they offered my mom and dad that I didn't. You know, different things in personality and background. And actually, my sisters are more gifted all around than I am. They're natural athletes. They're good students. They can sing and dance. And they were in school politics, popular and a lot better looking than I am. And so mom and dad loved them in a different kind of way. And in fact, my mom asked them, her mother, my grandmother, she said, how am I going to be able to love, she didn't know she was going to have two at the time, how am I going to be able to love my next kid as much as my first? And you may have asked that yourselves. How am I going to love the next one as much as the first? And my grandmother gave a really wise answer. She said, you love them the same, but differently. They're equal, they're just different. And you love them in different ways. We're going to continue today in our series, We Got Questions. And the question that we have, the hot button question in our series today, it was given to us more in a general sense, but I think it's safe that to, to, in a general way to answer the question in saying the question basically is, is God sexist? Does God love one sex or one gender more than the other? Uh, and sometimes that comes up. It, is, is God sexist? And um, I looked up the definition for sexist, and that's basically all it means, is that you would favor one over another, that you'd discriminate one over the other. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and I know my, my illustration may be a little bit simplistic, but I think in a very general sense, it kind of ties into what we're talking about today, which is to say that God made Adam first, 
and he was supposed to be more responsible. He was bigger and stronger, and he was supposed to protect her. Eve's accomplishments in many ways were just as good and greater than Adam's. God loved them both the same, but differently. And I think it's carried on for us today. Now, this is a tough topic. Culture weighs in on a lot, things I'm still wrestling through and learning. So please give me a lot of grace today. Okay, and try to be objective and look at this and see what the Bible has to say. So are there really differences between men and women, or is it just that we're culturally raised different? If we were raised exactly the same, would we be exactly the same? I looked this up, and I found emotional psychological differences online, and I looked at an article written about a year ago in Psychology Today by a psychologist named Gregory L. Jantz, and he talks about the brain. And he says there's four lobes in the brain, and there's done, they've done extensive research to try to understand behavior. And you can, by the different size and dimensions and depths of the different lobes, you can actually predict behavior, which turns out to be true, and turns out to be quite different between men and women. There are some generalities, but basically men, for example, according to these, are much more tunnel-visioned than women, while women are better at multitasking, which is generally true. I've known some guys that are better in you know, multitasking, women and more tunnel vision, but for the most part, I, you know, these are all, I think, generally true. Men are more physically impulsive and aggressive. Women input and absorb more sensorial and emotive information. They get in touch with their five senses better than men. Women tend to use more words. Now, my wife would disagree with that, <laughs> with me. You know, I may be an exception in that area. Um, men have less connectivity between their word centers, memories, and feelings. Women ruminate on and revisit emotional memories more. Men tend, after reflecting more briefly on an emotive memory, to analyze it somewhat and then move on to the next task. They sort of compartmentalize. He says it's mistakenly understood that men um, don't feel as deeply as women and that we will just move on to try to solve the problem. He says, actually, men do feel deeply, but they process it differently. And it's interesting, I talked to a, a number of people over this past couple of weeks, and one thing I found that's really interesting is that as guys, there are things that I just want to talk to guys about. I'm not going to talk to my wife or other women about it. It would be a waste of time. Uh, but there are things that I would only talk to my, I would only talk to women about. You know what I mean? There's, even as a guy, there's things I'm not going to talk to my buddies about. Because... Women are so much more affirming, easier to talk to, more sensitive. They get more in touch with your feelings. And you don't get that with guys as much. I don't know why that is. It just, there's some difference that takes place. He goes on to say that scientists have discovered approximately 100 different gender differences to the brain alone. It's not a matter of culture. We're physiologically, psychologically different than each other. And then physically, it's more obvious, obvious. you know, men are, are generally bigger, stronger, and faster. The biggest, strongest, and fastest men, when put against the biggest, strongest, and fastest women, you know, men are stronger in that area. At the same time, women are much more attractive, more durable, can birth children. Now, not all ch women are able to have children. Some don't want to have children. Some, you know, uh, but, but most do have children. And if you look at the birthing of children alone, the ability to bring life, that is the most incredible accomplishment that any human being can have. To the point where you could almost argue that she's superior over the man. He's kind of the bodyguard who takes care of the real merchandise, what's really important. But it's actually not quite that simple. 
there's, there's more involved. And uh, again, I think we can repeat it again and again that they're, they're equal, but they're different. Uh, I like what it says in, in Genesis 2, 18. It says that it wasn't good for a man to be alone. He needed a suitable helper. Let's not understand in Hebrew, suitable helper doesn't mean that he needed a helpmate. It means that he just needed another helper to complete him. The same could be said of a woman. A woman needs a suitable helper. They both need helpers. They need each other. And in the garden, they have this connectivity, this commonality, this oneness, which anybody who's ever been married wishes that they had that kind of perfection, you know, so to speak, with their spouse. People that aren't married wishes they could communicate better with the other gender. And so it's, it's the way God made us. Now catch this, though. They are said to, to be the image of God. Well, if they're so different, who's the image of God, the man or the woman? Have you ever thought about that? Neither are by themselves. God is as much represented by Eve as he is by Adam. God is both. All those attributes, when they come together as one, then they represent God in his completeness. As long as they're with God and walking with him. And so they represent the image of God as a couple. They complete one another. Now, that's the, the good news. And then we get to the bad news, which is the fall, where man and, and, and women, you know, they, basically Adam and Eve, they determine that they're going to go their own way. They uh, put forth their declaration of independence, and they say, we're going to eat from the uh, tree from the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to go against what God says, and we're going to stake, stake it out on our own. And the results of that are found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. It reads, To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So, really happy stuff. Uh, one of the more joyful passages of Scripture, right? I mean, that's like one that we don't like to talk and think of that much about. But, but let's back it up. First of all, is the Bible saying that work is cursed? Is work cursed? I don't think so. I don't think the work is cursed. I think he, the process of work is cursed. Work in and of itself is a good thing. There's a book I'm reading right now, How Shall We Then Work? Uh, and it's all about how important it is to work, that they worked in the Garden of Eden and will work in heaven. Work in and of itself isn't bad. It's the process that becomes difficult. And for man, sometimes we think, oh, he got the easy end of it because he didn't have the childbirth side, so he's, he's got it pretty easy. But let's understand the situation he was in at that time. He's built bigger and stronger, and he's not having children, so, you know, she's going to be, at times, she's not going to be able to help him. So a lot of the time, he's out there, and, and then she's watching the little kids. He's out there trying to do this work. The ground is full of thorns and thistles. Try to imagine this. He doesn't have any clothes, all right? He's got to get his own clothes. He doesn't have any tools. 
He doesn't have, he can't get on his computer, he doesn't have an app to tell him how to do things. He's got to figure it out all on his own. And if he cuts himself or hurts himself, there's no medication, there's nobody to protect him, nobody to take care of him. He has to protect his family from predators, possibly dinosaurs. And then other men do come along and attack him, and next thing you know, he's fighting them to protect his family, and often getting wounded or dying. It's a brutal world. Now, let's look at the woman's side. She has childbirth. Is childbirth cursed? Childbirth is, like we said, the most amazing thing that a human being can do. Childbirth is an incredible thing. It's not childbirth that's cursed. It's a process. It becomes more painful. And so imagine being a woman in that society where there's no doctor checkups, and we don't have Julie Beth, our resident you know, uh, midwife there to help. And if you're married to me, you're in big trouble because I'm really not good at stuff like that. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? You've got to have your own baby all by yourself. And what about the pain you go through? There's no medication, no epidural, you know, when you go in. There's nothing. You're just going to go through pain and suffering, and it's going to put you out of service for a long time. These were very, this is a very difficult situation that they were in. Um, and, and then on her part, it says that she wants to have this relationship that she had with the man before. And she no longer has that relationship. And he now is ruling over her, or really literally dominating over her. Um, how could God be so cruel? How could he, how could he do this? Let's look at it from the perspective of consequences. If you go to the book of the Proverbs especially and you read through that, you see it becomes very clear after you read that for a while, read through it a couple times, God deals primarily through consequences. It's a good rule for you or parents. God teaches primarily through consequences. Parents, you teach your kids through consequences. You don't do this, this is what happens. If you do everything for them, they'll never grow up. They have to be able to make those decisions. So God says, if you follow me, things are going to work out. You go out and you eat from the tree that I told you not to, things are going to go bad. That's your declaration of independence. You're on your own. It's like us saying to your kids, okay, if that's how you're going to behave, tough love, you're on your own. Let's see how it works on your own now. You're out in the world 100% independent. It's yours. God draws himself out of the situation. What happens? Natural consequences. When God's out in the scene, it's like taking sun away from the planet. The planet begins to die. And when you don't have parental guidance, what happens? When my parents were gone for long periods of time, my sisters and I would argue. And we would say things like, but mom said, but dad said, right? And without mom and dad, one of us had to play mom and dad. And guess who usually got that role? I did, because I was bigger and stronger. I said, this is what we're going to do or else, right? And if I was the girl, I would have done the same thing. And Adam, because he's bigger and stronger, he says, we're going to do it my way. And he forces himself physically to be the ruler. And so now, Eve has to figure out a way around that. Because she's more adept verbally usually, and she is able to use those skills, and she can become more manipulative, she can become more coercive, she can seduce him, whatever it takes to get what she wants. And then he realizes he's outfoxed, and then he's going to dominate more, and we have a dance that goes on forever, right? We've got some big problems because parental guidance isn't there. And here's what I want you to understand perhaps more than anything else today. You know what the problem is between men and women? It's because we're both selfish and we both want to be mom and dad. 
we both want to be God. And the women are saying, but we're more important. And the men are saying, but we're more important. And nobody's saying, but God's more important. And nobody's saying like, like in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it says we should consider others, and that includes other genders, more important than ourselves. How often do you hear that? That's the perspective that God wants. But when he's out of the picture and we choose not to listen or follow him, we've got problems. And because most people have chosen not to follow him, the problems have gotten really exasperated over the years. So what happens from here? Well, we see it's kind of stages of redemption. God coming back in the scene with the flood, and he says, you know, he just out of grace and love, he says, I just can't stand this anymore. I'm going to come back into the scene anyway and try to coach and help them to work out their problems. And so he comes back in, and, uh, and he works with Abraham and his family in particular. And what happens when God works with Abraham and his family? Suddenly we start hearing women's names again, and they're popping up everywhere, and they're becoming more significant. They're beginning to rival men with significance. And we, we meet people like... Uh, Women, who, you know, for good and bad, sometimes they work well with men, sometimes they don't, but they become significant players in, in um, Bible history. Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, and Dinah, and others. But they turn away from God in time, and they end up enslaved in Egypt, no longer looking to their father. And so they end up in Egypt, and uh, they're enslaved, and God sends Moses and the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is revolutionary in its time in regards to women. It begins to turn back and say, we need to take care of women, and it puts in new laws and boundaries to help to protect women. Now, some people might say, why didn't he just come in and make everything right? Why didn't he do that? Wouldn't that have been easy? He's God. He could do that. He could force himself on us and make us do what he wants us to do and make us like robots and take away our free will. But if we are to have our own free will and work on our own and work together, he, he's not going to do that. He could make the woman just like the man, you know, a lot more like the man, but then the representation of his image would be lost. Both sides are important to him. What he does is he initiates the process to prepare us for Jesus, and he comes in and he coaches how we're supposed to behave. And then we have to follow through. And the consequences are, if we respond correctly, things get better. If we respond worse, you know, wrong, it gets worse. And, um, and even though the man, I think, is more at fault in the sense that he's more responsible and he's, you know, being the bully, in many cases, women are antagonistic too. They're, neither are really working well. And then when they do work well, things go well. When they don't, it falls apart. So he's trying to move them in the right direction. And he's, you know, he's not forcing them, forcing himself on them, but he's coaching them and helping them. And, uh, and there's progress. But it's not, you know, eventually they fall back and doesn't make the progress that they should. But we see some great women that come out of this era. Miriam, uh, who is a singing prophetess. Uh, Rahab, who was a prostitute who turned around and became a great heroine and saved Israel. Uh, we look at Deborah, who was actually a judge. So in those days she was a, a prophetess, but she was a judge. She was like a mayor or like a governor over a region. Uh, we meet people like Ruth, who was, uh, became an ancestress to G uh, Jesus. Uh, Hannah was a great mother. Huldah, who was a prophetess who King Josiah looked to for advice. And Queen Esther, who used her position to save her people from genocide in Persia. So some really prominent ladies, and you can see it's beginning to progress. More and more, the women are getting back to where they are supposed to be. And then Jesus comes, and he includes women like no one else. 
He comes at a time where, where men wouldn't talk to women, and he talks to women. He comes at a time when men wouldn't touch women, he touches women. Uh, he talks to them, he interacts with them, he laughs with them, he cries with them, he builds relationships with them. Even before Jesus comes, in his genealogy chart, it includes women, which was unheard of at that time. And his mother, Mary, is a very prominent person. In fact, having studied the first two chapters of Luke, I am inclined to believe personally that she probably dictated most of that information to Luke. Jesus has good friends that are women. He has confidants like um, Martha and Mary and a group of women that traveled with him like Mary Magdalene, Mary, wife of Clopas, Salome, uh, Joanna, and others who are called his disciples. And according to early church history, they were leaders in the church, even sometimes over men. So these are people that he puts in position. And notice that the first person that he appears to in his resurrection are women, which was radical at that time. It's another reason why it, we have to say that the Bible is not mythology, because if you're going to write something mythological, um, you, you'd never do that. I mean, if you're going to try, this, this is unbelievable that he would say this is true, um, that he would go first to a woman. So you know that there, this has got to be, this is amazing stuff that he would do that. But Jesus does. Um, some people have asked, why didn't he have 12 women disciples then or have some of the women that were disciples? Because they would have been stoned to death. That was the time they lived in. That's one reason. But he begins to turn it. He changes the equation. And Paul says it, I think, best in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he explains to us what is the result of what Jesus has done. He says the result of it, if you follow what Jesus is teaching, is quite clear. And he says it in um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all now one in Christ Jesus. And he makes it clear that we're all equals. He makes it emphatically clear that that's what the Bible teaches. Interesting that women come right after slavery because for all intents and purposes, women were enslaved at that time. And the teaching is very similar to what we taught last year when we talked about slavery. Um, you cannot come in and just say slavery's over. Because you do that, and now these slaves are out on the street with no jobs and no, no, uh, nobody to hire them, no money, and oftentimes they don't have the skills to provide for themselves. Many of the slaves would have told you, I don't want to be set free. It's a process. You have to prepare for that. And the same thing with women. Though it may seem hard for us to understand, the prospect of a woman being free to do whatever she wants and do everything that a man wants to do was incomprehensible at that time. And most women would probably say, you're crazy. Because this is something they had to, you know, society had to work up to. They were just that far behind. They weren't, weren't trained for things and they weren't given those opportunities. So... Uh, you, know, you just don't change everything overnight. But it, it's kind of like what, what Abraham Lincoln, remember, said a lot about slavery. His main emphasis was, if you study his life works and his teachings uh, on slavery and all that, was not that slavery was going to end with the Civil War. The thing that ended slavery was not the Civil War. War doesn't end slavery. It doesn't end um, Im immorality. You can't force things like that. It, it'll just come back again and sometimes worse later. You know what ends it? It, when the majority of people get in their mind that it's wrong. When the majority of people get in their mind that slavery is wrong and that women and men are equal, then things change. When the majority of people see 
that men are to treat women with agape love, all of a sudden it changes the equation and they begin treating them differently. And that's the direction um, that things should hopefully go. And Paul, you know, picks up on this and he brings in Lydia. Lydia, he starts a church with Lydia in her home, a, a local businesswoman in Philippi. Uh, he works with Phoebe, and he, he makes her a leader in the church. He makes her um, a deacon in Centria. And Priscilla is one of his greatest helpers, and she even, along with her husband, trains Apollos for ministry, one of the great leaders of that time. Peter also recognizes this, you know, when he speaks in his great sermon in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he quotes from Joel saying that women will be filled with the Spirit and will prophesy. And if you go down to Acts chapter 21, verse 7, um, Philip has four daughters, and they're called prophetesses. Prophetesses didn't just predict. Prophetesses basically proclaimed. They were like preachers. So his daughters were, were speaking um, to people on behalf of God. So um, some still are troubled, though, when they read passages by Paul, like uh, the one in, in 1 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And we go into a lot of these different things, but I think I want, we don't have time to go into everything, but I'd like us to look at the main passage that this kind of comes out of, you know, the kind of the context is really marriage. Uh, and what Paul says is very insightful, I think, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30, 21 through 31. In verse 21, in Ephesians 5, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know what that means? That means men submit to men. That means women submit to women. It means men submit to women and women submit to men. Do you get that? Everybody is to have a submissive attitude toward one another. And then he goes on to give it as an example in marriage. And he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's start with the wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without strain or stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives with their own bodies. Let's jump, just jump down to 31. Uh, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So uh, what needs to be understood here is the wife is to be submitted and, and say, I want to serve you to her husband. The husband is to say, I want to help you be everything you can be. I want to help promote you and strengthen you and help you excel, and I'm even willing to die for you. What it's explaining is this collaborative kind of teamwork between the two. But when it comes to leadership, it's like dancing. Uh, the man leads in dancing. You know, somebody's got, you don't, you don't get out there and wrestle over it and fight over it every time. Let's, you know, every time you go out on the dance floor, you have to decide who's going to lead. The man leads. And in a marriage, the man is supposed to lead, but not in the kind of leadership we often think of. It's in a teamwork where when a final decision has to be made and you can't make it and it's necessary, he makes the decision. In my marriage, 
we work together as best as we can, and um, there have been times where a final decision needed to be made, and we couldn't come to an agreement on it. And I've made those decisions, but I can't think of a time I made those decisions that my wife didn't turn to me and say, you make the decision. You see what I'm saying? We do it as a team. And so in the end, I think it's correctly said that while the man may be the head, the woman is the neck that turns it. Okay? You work together as a team. And that's, that's what God describes in a marriage. Now, how about in church? Women can do anything in a church... But according to 1 Timothy 3, she's not to be an elder or pastor. And he gives reasons in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 13 through 14, which we talked about last year. And if you want more, you can look that, you know, listen to that. The main reason why is Adam is made first. He mentions that um, Eve sinned first. That opens up kind of a can of worms. Um, there's some other possible meanings in the Greek with that. And you can listen to that message from last year. But the, the main idea is that God just says that this is the way it is. There has to be a leader. And I want him to be the leader in the church. We get confused because we use different titles. In our church, we try to follow the original titles. So if we follow the original titles, the, the volunteer leadership are the elders and the pastors are you know, the, the primary leaders. That's the way it works. But sometimes people use different titles and they mean different things by them in different churches. Um, basically, primarily, those that are lead pastors in particular, um, according to the scripture, should be men. I've known women that are pastors, that are friends. And I think God in his grace uses them. I'm not willing to, to fight a battle over that. Um, but, you know, God, God can do what he does, does, but we have to make a decision for ourselves. And I think if we follow the Bible, um, that's the most correct way to follow it, the most correct way to understand it. Now, what are the results? There's been so, I made a list of all these women, and I just go on and on and on and on and on, um, that were famous, you know, Christian women that God has used through the years. And a couple just popped up. One was Hannah Moore. Hannah Moore, I'd never heard of. You ever heard of Hannah? Anybody heard of Hannah Moore? I, I just found, I read a magazine article about her last week. This lady um, was a playwright and a poet who used her writing skills to put together pamphlets and then went and spoke to famous people and worked alongside William Wilberforce and others and is considered the primary woman involved in helping to end slavery in the Western Hemisphere. An incredible woman who followed biblical principles. Elizabeth Elliot, I heard her speak um, in, in person. She wrote through Gates of Splendor, the story about how her husband was killed as a missionary and she stayed on the mission field and saw these people turn to the Lord. And then she wrote uh, Shadow of the Almighty and other books that influenced me in college days. The most powerful message I ever heard as a college student, I think, was when she stood up before thousands of us in Kansas City um, at a big conference and said, look around you and understand that if you look to your right and left, most of these people won't be walking with the Lord 10 years from now. And she was tragically correct. Very powerful prophetic message on that occasion. Henrietta Mears, anybody hear of Henrietta Mears? You haven't? Henrietta Mears was, had a, uh, lived just off campus at UCLA. And uh, what she did is she went to Hollywood Presbyterian Church and she started uh, Sunday school classes for the kids. She had 600 kids in her Sunday school classes. And it morphed into Gospel Light, the greatest production of material for kids um, known at that time. Just did incredible things for kids. Then she decided to teach her college class from UCLA and, and from the area. And she mentored men as well as women. Some of the people she mentored were Bill Bright, the founder and president of Campus Crusade for Christ, the largest parachurch organization in the world. Um, Dick Halverson, the great U.S. Um, Senate chaplain. J.B. Phillips, the great translator. And then when she was done with that, she went out and she started um, Forest Home. She was the main person who started Forest Home, the largest Christian conference center in Southern California and had an influence on Billy Graham. 
Who's to say that God doesn't use women who are followers of Christ in powerful ways? How about Margaret Thatcher? Anybody heard of her? <laughs> Devout Christian lady. And so God can use women in different ways. Still, we fall short, way short. And you know why we're still falling short? I, I'll tell you, and it's not going to be easy to hear. You want to hear? Because according to what we've seen throughout history and what Scripture says, most of you are not really walking closely to God. Most of you are not really giving it 100%. And so it's not happening in your lives. And so it's not being reflected by you to the community. To the degree it is, and there are times when a large number of people decide they're going to do that, and it influences all of society for good. But if we're not doing it in the church, how can we expect it to happen in the world? So that's where it's fallen down time and time again throughout history is we haven't done it. Still, the trickle-down effect has been positive, um, and women have had more opportunities than imaginable before Jesus, but it's still a problem. A lot of confusion these days because we live in an agrarian society, right? Men don't have to be big and strong and take care of the women anymore. We don't live in, a, we don't live in as much in an agrarian society, so you don't have to be a big and strong men, and women aren't getting sick. Um, you know, like, you know, they used to as much from uh, bearing children. But one of the problems we're having is things aren't changing the way we would like them to because what happens is now women are doing the work out in the world, but when they come home, men make them do the work at home a lot of times. And the problem isn't really getting resolved. I looked this up because I heard it, and I was amazed at the statistics, overwhelming, there's different ones, that overwhelming statistics about the amount of abuse, molestation, and rape that women will experience in our world today. The number of women that do it is just frightening. Um, the divorce rate, the bad marriages, the dysfunctional families have never been worse. Now, people can argue, well, they didn't take statistics in the old days. But I'll tell you this, it's certainly not getting better. And it appears on paper to actually be getting worse, despite efforts to the contrary. So what do we do? I want to end by just sharing the hope that we have. The hope is that at least we can start here by putting God first by putting others first, including other genders, by leading as a team in marriage, and understanding that you know, new statistics have shown that marriages, Christian marriages, are still the strongest marriages out there. If you look at people that just go to church once in a while and say they're Christians, their marriages aren't so hot. But when you look at marriages for people who are reading their Bibles together, praying together, going to church together, and so forth, off the charts. Those are the happiest marriages in our country that uh, statistics continue to show, as far as I've seen. Um, and then we lead as a, as a team in church. Understand, too, that the pastors and elders are almost always married. And so they're going to be much influenced in their decisions by their wives. And, um, and lead as a team in the world. I want to give one shout-out, though, for one thing before we close, and that is for those of you that may be single. I am, uh, Paul, says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is better than marriage. How come we don't hear that anymore? How can we make everybody feel so bad if they're single? It's okay not to get married. It's okay to be celibate and not get married. Some of the greatest people who have ever lived have been celibate and not gotten married. That is not the height of the world. That's not what it's all about. I have counseled too many people that are unhappy in marriage. In fact, I'd say most people, sometimes I almost feel like most people that are married aren't really happy. It seems like especially those that aren't walking with Christ. It just, and, and, and single people are made to feel like they're second-class citizens, and that is a travesty. 
And I wish we'd have more people stand up for singleness and celibacy because Paul says it's actually better. It's actually preferable in many ways. Um, a message that we've really lost in our society. And finally, God makes everything right in heaven, doesn't he? Everything is back to the garden. And we're back to where we need to be. So we have that final hope for us. Uh, how do we know we're getting to heaven? It's easy as ABCs. A, admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. B, believe that uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And C, choose to follow Christ and place your faith in Him alone. If you do that or want to do that, please come and talk to us because we'd love to help you enter heaven. Uh, I'll tell you this. The bottom line is, I don't think we're going to solve this problem just like other problems in life here on this planet. It's not going to be resolved because of selfishness and sin. But I do think we can make it a whole lot better if we practice what the Bible teaches in our relationships with one another and in our marriages, in our church, and in our world. We can help change this world for good and make it better if we determine that that's what we're going to do. And I pray that we do. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your teaching on this subject. Um, we know that some of it is hard to fully understand and grasp. Um, but I, I do hope that we can all see that women are just as important to you as men, that you love us all equally, but you work in our lives in different ways. Um, one day it's going to be perfect, and we can't wait for that day. But I pray that, uh, more than anything else, that each of us would determine to walk more closely with you as a result of what we've talked about today and uh, seek to put other people and other genders before ourselves um, that we might be a better reflection of your image here on earth. In your name we pray, amen.